Author and pastor Kyle Eidelman tells about a time when his daughter asked for a pet. And Kyle had never had pets growing up, and his daughter really wanted one, so he set down some rules. He said whatever pet they got couldn't make noise because their house was noisy enough without that. And so he said the pet couldn't have fur and it couldn't shed because their house was messy enough without animal hair going around. And so his daughter thought about it and she decided that she wanted a goldfish. So they went to Walmart and they bought a goldfish and Walmart had a uh, policy that you could return that fish if it died within three days, no questions asked. So they bought the fish, they brought it home, they set it up in its bowl and his daughter was thrilled. She named the fish Nemo and she watched the goldfish swim and then she got a little curious. She said she wanted to play with Nemo. Now, how do you play with a goldfish? Well, you swim with it, of course. And so they tried to explain to the little girl that having Nemo swim with her in the swimming pool was a really bad idea, that the chlorine and the chemicals probably wouldn't be good for the fish. But she wanted to play with the fish. And so what they did was they put Nemo in a clear drinking glass and set it on the edge of the pool and then she swam in the pool, and that way they could swim together, Nemo in the glass and her in the pool. And he said that he realized that was probably really cruel to the goldfish, you know, to be watching humans swim in this big pool while Nemo was only in this small drinking glass. But it made his daughter happy. And he said a little while later he looked over and noticed that the glass was empty. Apparently, his daughter decided that Nemo needed to swim in the big pool. And he looked around, and he saw Nemo swimming, and he said Nemo was having the time of his life. He was swimming fast, and he was swimming all over that pool, and he was just really enjoying his swim. And they still decided, though, that it probably wasn't good for him because of the chemicals, and so they decided to try to catch Nemo. Now, I've never tried, but apparently catching a goldfish in a full-size swimming pool is not an easy task. They tried for some time and couldn't do it, and then he said... Um, they noticed that Nemo started swimming slower, and he really slowed down. He said, in fact, it wasn't hard to catch Nemo because after just a little while, he kind of floated to the top of the pool, and they could scoop him up and test out Walmart's exchange policy. Now, most of us have had times in our lives when we were like Nemo, we were swimming fast. We were having fun in this vast pool that we call life. We were really enjoying life and we lived passionately. But then something happens and we begin to slow down. We begin to be bogged down with the busyness of life. And we get bogged down with the business of life and we get overwhelmed with the details and with the daily grind. And pretty soon we're swimming slower and slower, just trying to survive another day. And even that's better than the alternative. 
because some have figuratively put themselves in that glass next to the pool, watching other people enjoy life, watching other people take risks and have fun, and uh, while they stay safe and secure, going through the motions of a dull, ordinary life. And the truth is, too many of us have traded exciting lives for normal lives, bogged down with the details and stuck in the routine. And I even think most of us know it's not supposed to be that way. I think most of us know that there is supposed to be more to life. One man saw this and he decided to do something about it. Here's what he said. I didn't want to repeat my parents' life. I saw in their lives a routine and a lack of dreaming, a lack of possibilities, a, a lack of passion, and I didn't want to live without passion. Now, I don't suggest or endorse the choices Hugh Hefner made to avoid repeating his parents' life, but he was driven by the belief that there had to be more to life than a boring, ordinary routine. And even though his solutions were wrong, Hefner was right. God wants us to live passionately. He wants us to blow up the ordinary routine. He wants us to stop swimming in a well-protected world and to stop swimming slower and slower because of the problems around us. God says, go, live the adventure. Live the adventure. And living according to God's plan isn't supposed to be safe and boring and routine. He has called us to join him in an exciting, risky, a purpose-filled, fun, and sometimes heartbreaking adventure. God made us to live passionate lives. I, I like the way that the message paraphrases Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Here's what it says. So love the Lord God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence and energy. Circle the words passion and energy because God wants us to love him with passion. He wants us to love him with energy. He wants us to be passionate people who live adventurous lives. And whether you're a shy person or whether you're the life of the party, God says, go live the adventure. Look at what Romans 12 verse 11 says. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Did you notice the word keep? It says, keep your spiritual fervor. Now, if it has to tell me to keep my spiritual fervor, that tells me that passion is something that I can lose. I start out swimming fast in the whole pool, and I end up losing that speed and that energy, and I find myself trying to survive the ordeal of life instead of living the adventure. So as we conclude our God Says series, let's look at ways that we can listen to God and we can begin the adventure he has planned for us. The first action that you need to take if you're going to live the adventure is go experience life. Go experience life. Someone has said our lives are not measured by the number of breaths we take, but the moments that take our breath away. God created us to really experience and enjoy life. But as I already mentioned, life gets busy and it gets brutal and we stop living and we start just existing and going through the motions of life. At some point, many have seemed to make it their goal in life to be comfortable, to be safe, to be secure. Have you figured out yet 
that safety and security is really just an illusion. It's really just an illusion. You know, some have just geared their life to safety. I mean, some never travel on an airplane because they're afraid to fly. But let me give you some statistics. Did you know that if an airplane full of people crashed in the United States once every week and you were on an airplane flying somewhere once a month, you would still be in more danger of dying on your way to the airport than you would in an airplane. Air travel is that safe, and yet people don't fly because they want to stay safe. Some people never swim in the ocean because they're afraid of being attacked by a shark. Did you know that you are 30 times more likely to be killed being struck by lightning than by being attacked by a shark? And some, including my wife, are afraid of roller coasters. A recent study found that, that you are more likely to be injured playing a round of golf than you are riding a roller coaster. And here's a little known fact that we get from our insurance industry. Did you know that most amusement parks pay a higher insurance premium on the carousel than they do the roller coasters? More people are injured on the merry-go-round than on the roller coasters. The point is, safety and security is just an illusion. Our goal in life is to be comfortable, to be safe, to be secure. And then we wonder where all the adventure went, why it's no fun. Helen Keller said, security is mostly just superstition. It doesn't exist in nature nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Life is either a daring adventure or it's nothing at all. It's a daring adventure or it's nothing at all. And Jesus wants you and me to be fully alive. He wants you to experience life, living the life that you were created for, taking risks that he has called you to. Look at what he said in John chapter 10. He said, a thief is only there to steal and to kill and destroy. I came so that you can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. The passage is clear. Satan is a thief who wants to steal, kill, and destroy our adventure. He wants to destroy our joy in life. But Jesus wants us to stop existing and to start really living. He offers us life that we could never even dream of or imagine. A real and a better life. A life of adventure. And Jesus uses he used this next verse, these next verses to describe his generation, but it really describes us as well. Look at what he said. Then Jesus said, what shall I say about the people of this time? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another and saying, we played music for you, but you did not dance. We sang a sad song, but you did not cry. Jesus was saying, that the people of his time didn't experience life. They, they didn't enjoy every moment. He says, I played the music of life for you, and you didn't dance. You sat it out. You stayed as a wallflower. You were always waiting to live. You didn't experience life. And then Jesus said, when the sad song was played, you didn't even cry. You were just numb. 
You were callous. You were just going through the motions. Now ask yourself honestly, does this describe you? Does this describe your life? Are you experiencing life? Are you dancing to the music? Or are you just sitting it out? Are you really feeling compassion and pain for the hurts of others? Or are you just numb to it all? Are you really living life? Or are you just going through the motions? Are you experiencing the life, the joy, the pain, the exhilaration, the fear? Or are you just living a mediocre boring life. If this describes you, then you need to hear what Jesus said. Jesus said, I came to give you more than that. I came to give you a better life. I came so that you could have real life. God says, I want you to go live the adventure. And that starts by experiencing real life. Under each point, I'm going to give you a truth. Here's the one for this point. If you're going to live the adventure, you can't live a careful life. You can't live a careful life. To really experience life, you're going to have to take some risks. You'll have to do some things that make you uncomfortable. Maybe you need to take the risk of walking into a growth group full of potential future friends and find some people to share a life with. Maybe your risk is to take that trip that you've been hesitant to take because you're afraid or to try that hobby or that sport or that musical instrument that you've been worried that you'll fail at. Or maybe you need to get some help dealing with that past pain because that problem's been holding you back far too long. You can't experience life and avoid taking risks at the same time. So make a decision. Take a step towards God. Really experience life. Secondly, to live the adventure God has called you to, go focus on love. Go focus on love. Just before Jesus died, just before he was crucified, Before he was arrested, he was with his closest friends. They had gathered together in what the Bible calls the upper room, and they were about to participate in what we now call the Last Supper. And when they got there to that room, a lot was going on that night. I mean, the followers of Jesus were focused on anything but Jesus. I mean, they were jockeying for position. There was some politics going on in the room that night. They were arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom of God. They basically were saying, who does Jesus like more? Who does Jesus trust more? Who's greatest in Jesus' eyes? It seems that Jesus' closest friends were not at all aware that this was going to be the last meal that they would ever share with Jesus before his death. But Jesus knew that. And it's not in your notes, but in verse 1 of John chapter 13, Here's what it says, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to his father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. He showed them the full extent of his love. When Jesus knew his time on earth was about to end, he wanted to spend time 
with the people closest to him. He wanted to express to them how he felt about them. And I think that makes sense. If you knew that you only had weeks to live, you would be focused on the people around you. You wouldn't be worried about finishing that project at work. You wouldn't be worried about cutting the grass. You wouldn't be worried about remodeling the kitchen or other tasks that you've been stressing about. If you only had a short time to live, you would focus on love. It would be all about relationships. You would want to spend time with the people that you love. You would want to tell them what they mean to you. You would want to spend time laughing with them and crying with them and having fun with them. You would want to make sure that they knew that you loved them. And that makes sense when your time is short. But it's also part of the adventure that Jesus wants you to live every day. It's part of the adventure he wants you to live every day. Look at what he said to his followers that night. He said, I give you a new command. Love each other. You must love each other as I have loved you. All people will know that you are my followers if you love each other. Now, it is true that Jesus was about to die, but they weren't. His followers weren't about to die, and his command to them was what? I want you to focus on. He said, I want you to focus on love. He said that to them. This new command was for them, but it is also for us. His command is that all of us who strive to love Jesus should focus on loving each other. All of us who strive to love Jesus should focus on loving each other. And notice how he wants us to love each other. He says, you must love each other as I have loved you. As I have loved you, that's how you need to love each other. What does that mean? Well, let me give you a few ideas. They aren't in your notes, but let me give you two or three. Loving like Jesus loved us means that I love others even when they aren't loving to me, even when they aren't nice to me. I mean, we tend to do a really good job of loving the people that love us. We only love people who love us. I mean, if they're nice to me, I can be nice to them. If they show me respect, I can show them respect. But remember what Jesus said about that. He said, if you only love the people who love you, how is that any different? How is that unique? Everybody does that. Jesus said, I don't want you to just do that. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to pray for people who persecute you, people who are striking out to harm you. And so we need to love everyone. Now, another thing that loving people like Jesus has loved us means, it, it means that I make sacrifices. That's the way Jesus loved us. Jesus gave up everything that was good and comfortable and best for him to accomplish what was good and best for all of us. He gave up his life because that is what was necessary to accomplish what was best for us. And by the way, he did that for the people that he loved, including those who were actively trying to harm him. So loving like Jesus means that we need to sacrifice. That's what's motivated many of us to make huge financial commitments to Unstoppable. I mean, we could have kept the money for ourselves and done what we wanted or what we needed, but focusing on loving like Jesus means we sacrifice for the people who need him. Loving like Jesus also means 
we forgive those that don't deserve it. That one's hard, isn't it? I mean, we want to judge who we should forgive. We want to judge who we should forgive by how sorry they are or how sincere their apology was or we think that we should forgive people based on how much we think they deserve to be forgiven. But loving like Jesus means I forgive even the people who mean to hurt me. I forgive them before they even know that they need to be forgiven. And those are just a few of the ideas of what it means to focus on love and to love like Jesus. But did you notice that Jesus also in these verses gave us a way to evaluate how we're doing on this? He gave us a way to evaluate how we're doing on focusing on love. He said, all people will know that you are my followers if you love each other. All people will know you're my followers if you love each other. He said, people who don't follow Jesus, people who don't love Jesus, people who don't believe in Jesus will be able to tell that we do follow him and that we do love him and that we do believe in him by the way we love each other. Let that sink in for a minute. The people you work with who aren't followers of Jesus are supposed to listen to the way that you talk about other people. They're supposed to watch the way you treat other people. And they're supposed to see you focusing on loving people so much that they watch you for a while and they say, she must be a follower of Jesus. Or he must be a follower of Jesus. I can tell by how much they love others that Jesus really is making a difference in their life. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? I mean, just think for a minute um, about the reputation Christians in our culture have. Would you say that most are passing the test? Are they being recognized as followers of Jesus because of the way they treat others and love others and talk about each other. So how do we begin to really do this? How do we begin to really focus on love in such a way that people will look at us and recognize that we belong to Jesus? First John chapter 3, verse 18 helps us with this. Here's what it says, dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions, by our actions. Love is shown in actions. Love is always shown by its action. It's really caring. It's really listening. It's helping and it's serving. And our all-star volunteers around here are showing the love of Jesus today. And they're doing it by working with your kids over in Impact Kids or being in the parking lot or uh, serving in guest services or in the sound booth or in any number of different places. And love is always shown by our actions, not our words. And by the way, when your words and your actions actions disagree. People will believe what you do, not what you say. They'll believe what you do, not what you say. But I can't leave this point without reminding you of one other truth. If you're going to live the adventure, you can't live an isolated life. If you're going to live the adventure, you can't live an isolated life. Focusing on love means 
you have to be with other people. You have to be with other people. You have to have great relationships. And I really believe that many people are living a boring life because they've isolated themselves. They're living this dull, sad, boring life because they're just all by themselves. And they think they have good reasons for that. I mean, they can tell you all about it. They are just so busy at work and it's just get up, go to work, come home and go to sleep. And they don't have time to be with other people because they're so busy. Or they can tell you they have a good reason for that because they can tell you the story of how one time they made some good friends and they got so hurt and they were taken advantage of and they're just gonna protect themselves from being hurt again. Or they can tell you how no one seems very friendly to them. And to live the adventure, you need to focus on love. And to focus on love, you need to be with other people. And that happens when you get in a group here at Impact. Or it happens when you volunteer and you join a ministry team and you become one of those all-star volunteers that I talked about. And you get to be with others and show the love of Jesus on a team. And I really do think that much of experiencing life in this adventure Jesus calls us to requires that we really focus on love, how we're loving others. Our love for God and our love for each other is crucial. And that's why we say around here, we want to let God love us and love others through us. There are all sorts of people in your line of sight, people that you see every day, people that you interact with every day who need to feel the love of Jesus. They will know that you are one of his followers when you really focus on love, when you show them love in tangible ways. We're almost done here. But if you're going to live the adventure, we need to decide to go change your world. Go change your world. Jesus didn't call us just to experience life, and he didn't even just call us to focus on love. He called us to absolutely revolutionize the world that we live in. That's what he wanted them to do, and that's what he wants us to do. Just before Jesus left earth to go back to heaven, he gave to them and to us what we have come to call the Great Commission. And do you know what a commission is? The dictionary says it is a task or matter committed to one's charge. It is an official assignment. It's the act of committing or entrusting a person or group with supervisory power and authority. So with that in mind, listen to the official assignment that Jesus entrusted to us. Here's what he said. So go and make followers of all people in the world baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything that I have taught you, and I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. That is such an important thing for us to focus on. He wants us to change the world by going and helping other people become his followers. He wants us to teach them. He wants us to baptize them. He wants us to teach them to obey him. And those things can be done in many ways. Some will do them by standing on a stage and speaking or singing. Others will leave the country that they were born in and move to a different country and serve as a missionary. Some work behind the scenes to 
make things go smoothly by preparing and serving communion or working in the cafe or working on the safety team. Many will do it simply by inviting someone to come to church with them for a service or maybe even just start by inviting someone to come uh, hang out at the landing with them during the week. Some change the world through their financial generosity. Some change the world by doing things that no one ever knows about, that they don't ever get credit for, like visiting that lonely widow or that person in the hospital or helping a neighbor who is in need, maybe even anonymously. But God uses people who do these things to absolutely change the world. You might be sitting there cynical. You might be sitting there thinking that I'm only saying that to get more people to volunteer or to get people to give more or do more. And I am. But not for the reason that you're thinking. Not for the reason you're thinking. You see, I'm not trying to get you to change the world because the church needs it. I'm trying to get you to change the world because you need it. You need to live the adventure. You need to do what God has called you to do. God is saying, go, live the adventure, and you will always be living in that glass on the edge of the pool until you decide that you're going to do some of these things. You're going to change the world. You're going to let God use you to change the world. Paul said it this way, but my life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about God's wonderful kindness and and love. Some of you know I claim that as one of my life verses because I found it to be true. Life is worth nothing unless I'm doing what God has called me to do. I remember years ago, I was still part-time in ministry, working as a part-time youth pastor with my friend Roger Storms in Northern California. And one Saturday, we decided we needed haircuts. That was back when I needed haircuts, you know. I had hair. And so we went down the street about two blocks to a barber shop that we had gone to many times. And uh, the barber there, I mean, it was kind of a one-guy shop, and he was kind of this crass old guy and kind of a grumpy old guy, but he gave good haircuts. So we went in there, and I, th I think my friend Roger was getting his haircut at the time, and the barber said, you guys have been in here several times. Uh, you work close by? And we said, yeah, we work close by. And he said, what do you do? And we said, we're pastors at the church a couple of blocks away. And he got this look on his face that told me he was reviewing everything he had said to us up to that point, you know, and all of our visits. And he might be just a little bit embarrassed. And it was a little bit quiet. And then he said, oh, so you guys are pastors. There must be good money in that. And we both laughed because we were both making a wage at that time in that place in Northern California where we qualified for food stamps. We didn't get food stamps, but we would have qualified for food stamps. So we told him what we made. And I rem I'll never forget, he, he kind of, he had a comb in one hand and scissors in the other, and he kind of had this confused look on his face, and he walked around and he looked at Roger and he looked at me and said, so why do you do it? I mean, you lose your weekends, you don't get any money. Why do you do it? And we were quiet for a while, and I think it was Roger that said, I guess we do it because when it comes right down to it, 
nothing else really matters. Nothing else really matters. You know what? I've been doing this for nearly 40 years, and I really believe with all my heart when it comes right down to it, nothing else really matters. The old poem says it this way, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. And I'm not trying to insult you if you do something different than what I'm doing. I'm not saying that we all have to become pastors, that we all have to give our life to full-time ministry. Not everyone should go into full-time ministry, but some of you should. That may be what God's calling some of you to do. Maybe he's calling you to make that your retirement plan, to serve him full-time after you retire from whatever you're doing right now. Some of you should. You see, I can't tell you the adventure that Jesus has taken me on since I committed my life to full-time Christian service. I mean, I've lived in three states, and I've served five great churches, and I've had the privilege of serving Jesus in about eight different countries, and I've had I have a joy that many people don't have. I have people who love me and care about me all around the world, in many different cities around the world. That's a privilege. And Jesus has let me be a part of helping people cross the line of faith and to help them find that they can have the promise of eternal life, that they can have healing from their hurts and their hangups and uh, their habits. And he has used me to literally help him change the population of both heaven and hell, to empty out hell a little bit and fill up heaven a little bit. And I've seen him work through Jill and I to comfort people and to help save marriages and to rejoice when babies are born and to weep when people uh, die. And it's been an adventure. And I don't want it to end. I don't ever want to live a boring life. Why would anyone choose to sit on the sidelines when what God has for us is an adventure? Now again, Jesus isn't calling all of you to leave your job and become pastors. He has something even more important for some of you. He wants you to serve him full-time right where you're at and the job that you're doing. He wants you to influence people where you work and where you live, not by being odd for God, not by being one of those Christians that everybody wants to avoid, but by loving people and serving people and helping them just take one step closer to Jesus. But again, as the little poem says, only what's done for Christ will last. That's the only thing that will matter. Only what you do for him will matter in the end because it's that that's going to change the world. So here's the truth. If you're going to live the adventure, you can't live a wasted life. You can't live a wasted life. So as we finish our God Says series, will you hear him? Will you hear what he's saying to you? Will you hear him today as he says, please don't waste your life. Please go. Live the adventure don't just survive. Go live the adventure. I love the way the message paraphrases uh, verse 1 of Romans 12. Here's what it says. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you 
Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Take your everyday ordinary life and present it as an offering to God. Go live the adventure. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the times when we have taken the uh, exciting, risk-filled, purpose-filled life that you have called us to and we've tried to be safe and careful. Forgive us, Father, for the times when we've sat on the sidelines rather than dancing to the music of life. Forgive us for the times, Father, when we've sat around and complained rather than getting involved and letting you use us to change the world. And Father, right now I pray for each person here that you will cause them to hear your heart, that you want to call them into better, that you want to call them into more joy, that you want to give them more fulfillment, that you want to give them more challenges. They take risks to live the life that you've called them to. And Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you, Father, so much for the fact that you give us a new start, a new chance every day. Help us, Father, to not squander that today.